Hi, and welcome to The Wine Goblin, Season 1, Episode 1. I'm Danny, and I am a wine novice, but I'm here with Aaron and JR, who are going... Wait, fuck, let's start over. That's right. I was wondering where this is going. I know. Hold on, hold on, let me think, hold on. Well, should we say, like, I'm the... Like, JR's more... Uh, like, we should... Like, you're the novice, I'm more intermediate, and JR's more on the advanced side. We could... Can I just be, like, the fake expert? Yeah. Hi, and welcome to the Wine Goblins Season 1, Episode 1. I'm Danny, and I'm here with Aaron and JR. We're three best friends here to talk about wine. Our expert, some expert in all wine knowledge is JR here, who's going to tell us about the mission statement. I, I like to clarify I'm the fake expert, not actually qualified. No qualifications here. Yeah, this is a podcast, three best friends talking about wine. Danny, my sister-in-law, my favorite sister-in-law. Uh, we're talking about our favorite things about wine, our wine journey, and we'll share some wine news and our take on wine news. And the other part of the Wine Goblins, maybe the funniest person alive, my best friend, Aaron. Hey, everybody. My name is Aaron. And uh, similar to JR and Danny, uh, I have no industry experience. I just really enjoy wine reading about wine and obviously consuming wine and learn more about it. So we're going to take everyone listening on a little journey. We're going to talk about some fun things in the wine industry, including news, current events, as well as discuss uh, recommendations of producers we really uh, want to promote, as well as things to try and you know tips and tricks on how to impress your next dinner party. So your first question might be, why are you guys goblins? And it's important to note, we were given that title uh, by Aaron's loving wife, uh, Karen, who deemed us as goblins when we started our wine collection. And now we've bought into the moniker. It's true. You know, some some men collect classic cars and some men collect wine. And at least with a collection of wine, uh, it doesn't just signal that you have a small dick. So with that, we're going to bring it over to Danny. And we're going to talk about our first topic of, of uh, season one, episode one of the Wine Goblins. Yeah. Our first topic is going to be wine news of the week. And the wine news of the week is how, not how, but I guess the question of are tasting rooms dead? And JR, kick us off. What do you think? Yeah. So um, obviously, tasting rooms aren't dead, but it's our catchy headline that I think every news outlet in the wine world's using. And I feel like we talk about tasting rooms a lot because like wherever you are on your wine journey, you have some experience in a tasting room. You're in the industry, just starting to like wine or you're a snob about wine. You've probably sat in front of a spit bucket. It sounds like a gross experience, but I feel like everyone's gone through that experience. And OK, wait, wait, I've been wine tasting twice, you know, more than your average person, I would say. But that's a joke. I've never had a spit bucket you have because they don't always call them spit buckets and they sometimes hide them off to the side. So uh, Danny and I have been wine tasting in the lovely town of Los Olivos and sometimes they'll hide a spit bucket in like a planter's box or something. So it doesn't look. What? Yeah. So they, <laughs> they they don't want it to be right in your face, but it, it's definitely there. If you don't like the wine, it's, it doesn't have to stay in or you can spit it just because you want the taste and you don't want to swallow because you're driving or whatever reason you want sometimes um, too the uh spit bucket also looks like a tip jar which i've made that mistake before <laughs> wish i had that 20 back <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
But the reason we're talking about tasting rooms uh, this week on the Wine Goblins is they're all over the news because in 2023, we've seen a record number of reports about slumps in visitors and sales and tasting rooms with outlets, major outlets reporting that the soaring costs of tasting rooms in California have resulted in less visitors, which have obviously resulted in less sales. We'll include links to all these articles in the show notes below. But the brief synopsis of this is that tasting rooms enjoyed record visitors in previous years, but things slowed down in 2023. But there's hope there's a bounce back coming in 2024. However, there is some concern that this might be a lasting issue for the wine industry moving forward. And I guess the question is, is if you're not going to a tasting room, how do these small wineries uh, find buyers of their wine? Absolutely. Now... And in some of my experiences with wine tasting, uh, it can be a really good time, but it can also be a little, you know, stuffy, a little more guarded. It seems like there's more barriers of in- barriers to entry for the wine world, whether that's by design or just on accident. So, for example, you know, we've we've talked about, you know, there could be bachelorette parties or even bachelor parties going to these. It could be more of a a loud environment, or it could just be kind of a intimidating environment with, you know, folks using terms and terminology uh, they don't necessarily understand or don't fully grasp or just don't have the experience with. In addition to, you know, you might, uh, uh, small wineries, an average bottle could be, you know, $25, $30, $40 easily. Whereas if you don't really have strong opinions about what you like or don't like, you might just say, I'm just going to go to the grocery store and buy something for $10, $12, $15 and save my money and spend it elsewhere. So I think there's lots of opportunities for uh, tasting rooms to uh, make, be a little more approachable and sort of educate the novice consumer you know, why something is tastes the way it does or why the price is the way it is um, and kind of just help them appreciate, you know, the craft that goes into that. Danny, do you have a favorite memory from your tasting room experiences? I don't remember much at all, to be honest. I didn't know. I didn't use the spit bucket, so. <laughs> uh, I mean, Danny and I have oh. been to tasting rooms in Los Olivos and Paso. So she's kind of cultured and, and pretty experienced. D- did you remember something? I did, actually. In Los Olivos, I found Gamay, which is now my favorite kind of wine. So that's the great thing about tastings is you get to taste wines you would never choose, like to buy a bottle of. Danny's one of the founding members of the Gamay Gals Club. So if you have Gamay recommendations, she's always interested in hearing about them. It's very true. What, also, what is, what, what is Gamay? A delicious kind of wine. JR, can you elaborate, please? So as the fake expert, I think I'm supposed to step in here. Gamay is a red grape, red wine. It comes from the Bourgeois in France, which is just south of Burgundy. It's technically still part of Burgundy, but the Burgundy producers hated Gamay. They wanted Pinot. So there was a phrase that came out that was goddamn Gamay, because every time they discovered a vineyard that was actually growing Gamay instead of Pinot, they got so pissed off because they wanted to rip it up and change it out for Pinot, which is obviously the noble grape that earns them more money now is gamay like um like would you have it like a, with like a steak is really full bodied or is it like more medium bodied or light bodied gamay is on like it can be made in a bunch of different ways i was actually reading an article today about a producer of natural wine who makes a gamay almost in like a zen style which sounds ridiculous because gamay can mostly come across as a medium to light body type of wine that's really fruit forward that's supposed to be easy drinking Beaujolais earned their reputation as like the cheap region of France because they were trying to sell grapes quickly and they would always sell their grapes off before they had time to age at all. So they used to sell their gamay really fruit forward immediately with no intention of aging it, which kind of 
earn that reputation of a lesser region within France. Very interesting. So you're able to, so even though it's it's naturally a lighter style wine, you're able to modify it and make it, you know, more full-bodied, higher alcohol, like a Zinfandel or anything in between, because it's a really versatile grape. Is that why Danny likes it as well? I really enjoy the fruit forwardness. I thought it was a deep flavor personally. Yeah, it just really, it's a tannic, has a lot of tannins. I appreciate that. I like the kinds of wine that makes your mouth pucker. So yeah, but back to the whole wine news of the week and tasting rooms and how tasting rooms are dying and it's harder for small wineries to have them because they would have to A, have a physical space for it and B, have more staff. There's some really interesting things that are coming out to help overcome those issues. And one of them is this really cool website or subscription-based site called Drink Sample. And it's kind of like almost a subscription for tasting new wines. JR, do you want to elaborate? Because Yeah, Drink Sample is not a sponsor of this podcast yet, but please get in touch if you're interested in sponsoring us. Um, Drink Sample does an excellent job of trying to find representations of regions to present in like three and a half, I think, ounce containers that are easy to ship. So they're not coming in like massive bottles or anything like that. That can give you a pretty good idea if you're going to like the wine from that region. So it's almost like a way of you visiting somewhere like, say, Santa Barbara County and tasting Santa Barbara Chardonnay, Santa Barbara Pinot, and getting that experience given at your doorstep without actually having to go into a tasting room. So it's it's one of the ways that the wine industry is looking at trying to help smaller uh, wineries get customers from maybe areas that wouldn't look to travel there. Yeah. And I love that idea because personally, I can't drink a whole bottle of wine by myself. So buying one just to try it and not knowing if I'll like it is stressful. Fun fact, Danny can actually finish a bottle by herself. I was there Christmas Eve 2022. So (laughs) there's some stories that she probably doesn't remember, but she was on her wine journey at that point too. Yes, that was Uh, a good wine. What wine were we drinking? I really enjoyed it. Who knows? I was finishing my own bottle that night. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the, wife, the wife was pregnant, I think, at that time. So I was having a good time on my own, too. You know, moving along, we're going to introduce our next feature of the podcast, which we hope is running installment called Wine List of the Week. One of my favorite pastimes, which I have dragged Danny and Aaron into the experience, is looking up wine lists at fine dining establishments and uh, dreaming about the perfect bottle I would pick to, to go with the meal. And it's always a fun exercise for me because I get to basically experience or try to envision what the wine director is going for. And I think one of the things the wine directors tend to do that maybe the normal consumer doesn't understand is they always leave a bottle or two on their wine list to try to see who knows. Like it's like if you know, you know, type of bottle that's reasonably priced that they're trying to give their uh, customers that they like a, a glimpse into the types of wine that they like. And the first restaurant we picked for this is Birdies in Austin, Texas, which is in the news this week because the famous Thomas Keller visited them. Thomas Keller of the French Laundry fame, probably one of the most famous chefs out there. He, he traveled down to Austin, Texas to visit them, which was a big deal. But their wine list is a great example of what I think is a fascinating wine list and really cool bottles on there. And the wine list is great because Birdies is run by a husband and wife team. The wife is the back of house chef. The husband's the front of house. He basically had no wine experience when they started the restaurant. He was in fine dining, but he wasn't really the wine buyer or the wine director. And then he just started the wine list 
basically putting things on there that he liked and it's grown since there. And I think it's pretty well respected from importers based off the bottles that are there. We'll include a link to the wine list in the show notes. But Aaron, I was curious if you could get us started on which your bottle this week would be. Well, what are we going to be eating at our meal at Birdie's? It's it's a modern American cuisine. Usually it's pretty fresh farmer market type of vegetable with Texas meats kind of style. Okay, that sounds good. I So what I'm thinking is if it's Austin, Texas, so I, for folks who don't know, I'm based in Seattle, uh, a little cooler climate than Austin, obviously. So I'm probably going to be, you know, thinking no matter what the temperature is, it's a lot warmer than I'm used to. So I want something kind of light, refreshing, most likely white wine. And let's be honest, I'm affordable, Aaron. I really like to uh, try bottles on a, on a budget if I'm not 100% sure what I want. So I'm actually eyeing this Sauvignon Blanc from uh, Santa Ynez, their valley there in California, close to you guys. And the price is $46, which is very appealing to me because if I don't like it or it's just okay, it's not too much skin off my back, all things considered. And then they, what's really cool here is they have uh, individual words as adjectives to kind of describe, you know, what what this uh, wine evokes for those for the sommelier who did this wine list. And, you know, they this one is friendly and I like to think that I'm friendly. So I'm going to go with the uh, Sauvignon Blanc from uh, Santiana's Valley. The only word I would put above friendly for you would be flirty, but I don't mm-hmm. see a flirty option on the wine list. So I think friendly is perfect for you. Uh, Danny, what were you leaning toward? Okay, well, unsurprisingly, because we've already discussed this, my favorite wine is Gamay. And they had a lovely looking, let's see, 2020 Gamay that I don't have JR hair. Uh, I'm going to have to try to pronounce this on my own. So please correct me. Let's hear it. Domain Sorol Chez Coast. Did I just butcher that? None of us speak French, so no one's correcting you, but you're doing great so far. You're great. And it is a Gamay. It's the year 2020 and it is $98. But, but the word to describe it is cozy. Its alcohol percent is 13.5%. And it got a 93% on Wine Searcher. So I think you know it's good. The tasting notes are described as. The fruit is bright on the nose and precedes a fresh and sappy mouth with a fine, silky structure. So, so Danny, what does a sappy mouth mean to you? So to me, I think it's that feeling. I could be completely wrong, but I think sure. it's that feeling of the tannins. Like kind of makes your mouth like feel weird. Almost. Is that wrong? What do you guys think? I Like my interpretation of like tasty notes is like, the way you taste things is different for everyone. It's so, like I like tasting notes as like a guiding light, but like I'm never going to follow a tasting note. Like you can Google whatever grape you want, like Gamay, for instance, and you'll find Wine Follies like recommendations of what it tastes like. But like it's going to taste different to you. And like there's no wrong answer to a tasting note. I know someone's going to be like, oh, there is a wrong answer. But like there's really no wrong answer is what it tastes like to you is like, are you more into the fruit? Are you more into the structure? Are you more into the acid? Like just it's however your palate interprets things. And like that can obviously be influenced if you drank coffee right before you went to a tasting at 9 a.m. like we all do in France, or it could be influenced by sipping apple juice right before you record a podcast. So there's a lot of reasons. I will say that like if you are serious about like having like a great bottle of wine at dinner, make sure you're having it earlier in the meal because the more salt and the more sugar that hits your tongue, the harder it's going to be to enjoy that experience. Um, But I guess that leaves me as the 
as the last one to to give my uh, thoughts on this wine list. I'm like, there's so many great options here that it's it, it's hard to pick just one, but I'm in that mood where if you're at Birdie's, it might be your only time at Birdie's, so you might as well back up the Brinks truck because we're spending a lot of money tonight. And there's a Domaine de Cassiope Burgundy from 2020 on the list that's described as ethereal. And Domaine de Cassiope is husband and wife team in Burgundy. I don't believe either of them are originally from France. I believe one's German. I can't remember. Maybe the other one is from France. But they're one of the rising stars in Burgundy, one of those new producers that seems to draw acclaim from every critic. And seeing them on a restaurant list is pretty hard to come by. So whenever you have the opportunity, it's definitely worth taking a flyer that might be more expensive than some of the other options on the list, but you're probably going to be in a pretty good spot with with that bottle. And one of the things that I love about this uh, producer is that they pretty much only use old vines, but most Burgundy wines are old vines. They're, they usually don't produce wine until the, the vines are at least 35 years old, but they go after the vines that are over 100 years old. And I think that speaks to the character of the place and also speaks to the character of the, the winemakers. So I feel like that would be a fantastic bottle for wherever you decide to pick for your meal that night. It's also fitting because it's a husband and wife team and so is Birdie's. Great point, Danny. Great point. Bringing it around. Fitting. It's also fitting because it's described as ethereal. And JR, I think your wife has described you as ethereal once or twice. I hope so. I mean, so, some days are good days. We have a newborn at home. Some days are bad days. So you can just try to take the small victories you can. Like maybe she'll listen to this podcast when it's released and we'll call that a win too. So JR, you mentioned old vines. What, what does, why, why would it matter if, a, if the grapes come from an old vine versus a new vine? Like, does it, does it affect the taste? Does it affect the texture? What, what does that, what's that all about? This is a, yeah, this is a long one. Old vines are important especially if France identified this decades ago, but it's especially important for the health of the fruit. Younger fruit obviously doesn't have as many sugars in it. It doesn't have the same structure in it. So it's harder to make like those uh, world-class wines from younger vines. And so that's why you see uh, the prize of old vines so prominent to certain producers is that they're always trying to search after old vines. There's a there's a California producer called Bedrock who their whole mission is to find old vine Zinfandel, which is one of those great varieties that's kind of going extinct almost. It's not as prized as it has been previously, but they've been searching out those those old vines and trying to keep them alive because I think frankly the fruit tastes better when it, when it's coming from old vines and and that matters a lot for the consumer when you're drinking this wine. Got it. Very cool. That makes a lot of sense. All right. So next up, we have what's in our glass this week. So Aaron and JR are both drinking something. They're going to tell us what. And I am not this week. So I will be asking them all about what they are drinking, starting with somebody telling us what it is. (laughs) Yeah. So this is uh, the producer is called Championship Bottle. It's actually just a single winemaker who kind of does this very small production from start to finish. His name is Saul. Um, he's based in the Willamette Valley, which is about 40 minutes southeast of Portland, Oregon, which is you know primarily known for Pinot, Pinot Noir grapes as well as Chardonnay. And there's all kinds of different varietals. But this is uh, called David and Veronica uh, from the 2021 Harvest. JR, do you want to say anything else about this wine? I, I love this wine. I, th- I think it's delicious. I, I think one of the mottos that we have for the wine of the week is we want to present a wine 
in a purchasable range between like 20 and 50 dollars that we think you could take to a dinner party and almost be universally loved and i think this wine definitely hits that note for white wine lovers and it's great to see like a different grape of white wine getting this type of treatment because i think a lot of white wine for the novice drinker just kind of like looks at chardonnay maybe they look at pinot grige and that's pretty much it where pinot blanc is this mutation of pinot noir it's not really found in that many places not that many vignerons grow it purposefully for the most part it's mixed in with things and this is mixed in with chardonnay and you can tell it has a little bit of the rounder feel because the chardonnay is offering that in the mouth but is there an oakiness from the chardonnay i don't perceive any I, I don't think there's any oakiness in, in this one, but the one thing about Sal's wines is he sells them pretty early. They're pretty young when he sells them and his mailing list for the spring or the fall, I guess it's fall now. The fall wines is out now and he sells them maybe too young. So it's the best if you just try to let them age a little bit. And Aaron and I are drinking 2021s right now. And this is just starting to hit its stride, but I wish I had more to, to leave in the cellar for a few years down the line just to see how it evolves. Absolutely. And what's um, kind of going back a little bit to the Willamette Valley, it's really interesting because for folks who may not know the geography of it, the Willamette Valley is just, like I said, just 40 minutes or so southeast of Portland, Oregon, which is on the western side of the Cascade Mountains, which is, uh, again, for those folks who aren't terribly familiar with the geography of the Pacific Northwest, most of the wine regions are, especially in Washington state, are on the eastern side of the mountains because it's a lot drier. The soil is a lot more fertile from volcanic activity and uh, sediment deposited from uh, glacial floods, you know, 10,000 years ago. You can read a lot more about that. The spell on, that on Wikipedia uh, if you're interested about that sort of geology. But uh, what's really interesting is that there's a small, tiny rain shadow from this little coastal range they have there in the, in the valley. And then uh, they have such terrific volcanic soil that's really well draining whereas in the western side of the cascades in washington state a little bit further north that soil would be is not uh volcanic so it's not gonna be draining and you, there'd be a lot of there'd be, there'd be a lot of rot uh and disease and fungus so it's kind of this really unique little area this little pocket that's like a absolute perfect conditions for pinot noir as well as you know chardonnay aaron you know a lot about the area have you gone wine tasting there? I, have, I have yes last summer we uh my wife and i went down there to check it out for the first time it's a beautiful little area um and it's pretty interesting because it's there's wineries and grapes uh being grown next to you know like fur christmas tree farms cherries apples it's a really uh the soil there is just really incredible as well as the climate for growing um so it's a really cool place i'd recommend uh anyone who's interested to go there it's like i said it's only about 30 40 minutes from portland oregon so you could just actually stay in the city if you that's easier. And I actually had the opportunity based on JR's uh, recommendation to uh, go to Championship Bottle and meet the winemaker, Saul. And uh, my wife and I spoke with him for about three hours. He's just like the most interesting guy who's really passionate about. Did you get a picture with him? I did get a picture. We can uh, put it in the show notes. Well, uh, no. Can we put it on the Instagram? That too. Okay. Whatever It'll be on there. you want to do is fine with me. Uh, but just two best friends hanging out at a winery. Just talking shop, you know, exchanging numbers, talking about, you know, future vacation plans. No, I'm joking. But uh, yeah, anyway, so uh, like I said, if anyone's in that is interested in a wine trip, uh, that's a beautiful place to go because there's just dozens of, I mean, probably, probably hundreds of really high quality wineries. And what I've found there, as opposed to other places, uh, well, not opposed to other places, but 
there are uh, really passionate people who just love wine and they want to talk your ear off about it. And they love having people come appreciate their craft and ask them questions too. So anyway, that's my little tangent about the Willamette Valley. Jared, do you want to talk about what this wine tastes like? Um, tasting me, notes? Oh, Danny loves tasting notes. I love tasting notes. To, to me, as I mentioned earlier, it, it's it's a little bit rounder than just like a Pinot Blanc on its own. I do get a little bit of Chardonnay on like the, the mouthfeel of it. I do feel like you taste some pear if I was going off a of fruit. The acid's still okay. I think there's usually with a with a Pinot Blanc, there, there's a little bit like less alcohol content, a little bit lower. This is a 12.4, so it might be a little bit higher than probably a, a normal Pinot Blanc 100% would be. But it's 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 really an easy to drink summer white, I would say. I mean, I think most Pinot Blancs are supposed to be drunk, like pretty close to cellar temp, if not a little bit chilled. So the recommendation is usually to go a little bit colder on these whites. Yeah, absolutely. I'm still trying to put my finger on it, but I, I definitely got a little bit of pineapple, not too many other, you know, uh, tropical fruits. But yeah, I definitely feel, feel like I can taste the pear. But, but I, I really love uh, how, like you said, was it was at roundness. Is that what you said, JR? Yeah. yeah. It's really round. It's well made. It's balanced. And obviously, you know, with most white wines, you could definitely pair it with fish or shellfish. But I would also recommend pairing this with like a, ri- a rich chicken that's kind of buttery or, uh, you know, French food or, you know, I think this would be really versatile as a food wine. Um, you wouldn't just need to stick with the normal, you know, seafood or shellfish. It's really a nice white. And like, I think it's somewhere in the 20 to $30 range. But if you have the opportunity, definitely seek out Championship Bottle. He makes some fantastic, fantastic wines uh, across the range. And, and they're definitely interesting uh, varieties for the most part, especially for Oregon, which is known for their world-class whites and, and pinots, but this is definitely one that's a little bit different that's worth the effort to find. Mm-hmm. And I also believe that Saul tries to make his whites uh, more in the style of, uh, is it the Friuli region of Italy? Is that how you say it, more or less? Friuli? I believe so. Yeah, it's kind of close to Venice in the northeastern corridor. Uh, but there's definitely a style of wines that he tries to emulate. And actually, when I spoke with him, I asked him about that. And he said he actually... When he started making wine, he actually hadn't, hadn't even been there. And then he you know, had since taken a trip there. So flex. Good example for a drink sample. Please sponsor us. <laughs> All right. So uh, Danny, I, uh, I heard, are your, are your uh, smoke detectors going off? Is that what I hear? Because something's very hot. What? I'm missing something. Do you have a hot take of the week, Danny? And <laughs> like our, our okay. show outline that we're going off of? I thought we were skipping that. Uh, yeah, I do have a hot take of the week, and it's that I don't like Chardonnay. But JR here is trying to change my mind. And JR, tell me why you think my mind can be changed. It's very I'm, interesting. I'm convinced I can change Danny's mind on Chardonnay. I think Chardonnay is the most versatile uh, grape in terms of introducing people to white wine. But I think one of the Greatest examples of Chardonnay that will change people's perception of Chardonnay is in Champagne. When when you have a Blanc de Blanc and you can see the the, the flavors of what can be achieved uh, from a sparkling wine is is kind of crazy. But uh, when you're tasting the difference between South Burgundy white wine compared to something from Chablis, when you have that type of range in Chardonnay, I think it's 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 really interesting. It's hard to universally hate a grape because most people look at Chardonnay and they probably think of mass-produced white wine from some of the conglomerates in the wine world. And that's not uh, 
the the perception of Chardonnay once you've been in the weeds and you really get into your wine journey. So as Danny's new on her wine journey, Erin and I have set out in changing her perception in her hot take of the week from which grapes she hates, which wine she hates. And we're going to try to fix things. We're going to make it right for America, but also for the wine world. Danny, do you like sipping on champagne? No. Oh, you don't? But oh, I've tried very few champagnes, mostly sparkling wines. Well, yes, champagne is a sparkling wine. But if you... Well, like actual champagne from okay. champagne. But if you have a champagne from champagne, it's almost certainly going to be, you know, if not 100% Chardonnay, mostly Chardonnay. Is that is that fair to say, JR? Uh, I mean, like, there's, there's three main grapes uh, from champagne. It's champagne, uh, sorry, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, uh, and Mounir. And I, I think the the thing is, is like a Blanc de Blanc is almost always going to be Chardonnay. Sometimes there is a Pinot Blanc thrown in there, but like for the most part, it's 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 Chardonnay. And the there's the Blanc de Noir, which tend to be the Pinot Noir ones, and then vice versa. But like there are a lot of ones that are blended, all three grapes. So there is a wide range from Champagne. But Danny's had some experience with Champagne. Um, she, she's had Champagne at weddings. She's had Champagne at uh, Christmas. Uh, I brought a ball for her once, which she thought was too cold. So she left outside to elevate the temperature of. And uh, I'm not quite sure it worked the way she intended. But, you know, it, it's it's our quest to, to make her change her mind about certain wine styles and grapes. So we will continue. It's just a small uh, bump in the road for us. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I, uh, I also was kind of anti-Chardonnay because I associated it with, you know, headaches, kind of more cheap, you know, so stuff that you have at a you know at a gathering or something like that usually not terribly noteworthy but uh, again those were usually cheaper chardonnays from you know Washington or California then uh, was able to go on a trip to France and based on JR's uh, recommendation went to Burgundy and when you're there it's it's mostly you know the predominant white grape is chardonnay and tasting something completely different was you know pretty mind blowing just the still the same grape still same species of you know fruit but with you know different climate, different soils, different uh, winemaking techniques, uh, it's really incredible how different a grape can can change taste. Uh, and it's kind of cool because you know um, it's kind of opened my eyes that we have so many biases towards you know I don't like grape X, I don't like region Y, whatever. But um, it's all about you know not only the grape but the way it's produced, the climate, you know the temperatures that year, the weather that year, and how it can dramatically change the way something tastes. You know, Jared mentioned earlier how Gamay, you know, a lot of people just think of it as light, fruity, juicy, you know, from Boujolet um, Nouveau. And then with, but with higher quality, you know, yields and higher quality winemaking techniques, it can range from as much as a Zinfandel to, um, to the lighter side. So um, I've just, you know, challenged the listener to get, try to get rid of your biases and try things you'd never think to try. You know, don't really buy based on the label or the region or the grape, but just, you know, try something new that you wouldn't otherwise choose and see if you like it or not. And we're going to be challenging each other in future episodes as we uh, purchase bottles of wine to try to change our perceptions. Uh, Danny, Aaron, our biases will all come out and uh, you'll get to experience our journey and trying to new wines and figuring out if we like or don't like this type of grape. Jared, would you kind of consider this swinging but for wine? I would say it's dipping your toes in that lifestyle. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'll leave my keys uh, in the fishbowl, that's for sure. Hey, we've already talked about pineapples. <laughs> so I think we still have to choose a wine to drink next time. But 
Other than that, yeah, that's everything on our schedule to talk about. Thanks for listening, everybody. Like and subscribe. (laughs) Thank you.